This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast, and I'm kind of nerding out right now because, to be honest, my guest today is Mr. Bill Barbeau. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. My pleasure. I say nerding out because I'm going to read Bill's bio in a second, and uh, I don't mean to make you feel weird, Bill, but you you and Jay uh, Robbins and Jawbox have been so influential in my musical life, not just love of music, but uh, I'm a guitar player as well as a bass player and drummer, but uh, I've grown up playing in bands, you know, since I was 13, and it was either post-hardcore, indie rock, or some hardcore too, or the other end of like very sludgy, droney, like bloodlet dead guy bands I don't even know if you're familiar with, but like real heavy. But the stuff that you and Jay were writing in Jawbox that I heard back in like 92, 93 blew my mind and to this day like continues to influence my playing. So before I read your bio, I just wanted to on camera say thank you for that. Um, Really, like you've deeply impacted my life, both musically and just you've been such a large sound part of the soundtrack to my life. So much uh, many thanks. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Sure. Uh, I'm sure you get that a lot, but now it's my turn to say it. So anyways, that <laughs> said, uh, I'm going to read your bio now. Uh, Bill grew up white, straight, nerdy, middle class kid in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. The 70s blessed him with a love of top 40 radio and what came to be known as classic rock, morphing his teenage brain into a lyrics memorization machine for Neil Diamond and ACDC in nearly equal measures. The punk rock bug bit via a crappy dub of Husker Du's Zen Arcade in fall of 1984. Phenomenal record to this day. Uh, after stints in various punk and new wave flavored bands throughout high school and college, a willingness to apply for jobs he wasn't qualified to tackle led him to abandon his Russian degree from Williams College to become the second guitarist and singer for DC post-punk heroes Jawbox in early 1991. The move proved a success, and Bill recorded and released three albums with with Jawbox, 1992's Novelty on Discord Records, and a pair of albums on Atlantic, 1994's For Your Own Special Sweetheart, and the band's epic... Wow. (laughs) And I'm an author. Eponymous Swan Song in 1996. I like I said, I'm nerding out a little, Bill. I've interviewed 
like the top of the top people, but this is like a really deeply high school, like, wow thing for me. So my apologies, <laughs> keep it together, Chris. Um, anyways, uh, so that was the self-titled record in 96. Uh, Life on the Road suited him, and he played over 600 live shows on multiple tours of North America and Europe. After Jawbox demise in 97, he released an additional album with an another incredible band, Burning Airlines, uh, with Jay Robbins. You were on the Mission Control record, which between you and I is my favorite of the two, but we'll keep that between us. Um, other one was great. Uh, but shortly hung up his guitar to join the internet revolution, starting digital design firm Three Spot with two partners in 1999. He now serves as the agency's president pursuing the company's vision of using its talents in communication strategy, digital design, and software engineering to serve clients and causes committed to positive social change. Since 2016, he's also been the lead singer and guitarist of Foxhall Stacks, a power-pop-inflected punk band, as well as playing sold-out shows in a reunited Jawbox. While music and work occupy much of his life, Bill considers his family to be his crowning success. He is the dad of an 18-year-old son and two adorable daughters, five and one. He still lives in the D.C. suburbs with the girls, a dog, a fish, and his wife, Erin, a fellow entrepreneur and seeker. And, you know, Bill, I'm sure that just barely begins to scratch the surface of your life and, uh, you know, what you've done with it. But again, thank you for taking the time. My apologies for uh, nerding out and stumbling on some words there. But um, like I said, this is a really special conversation for me. So I'm excited to chat with you. And I figured while we're going to go into some different areas, and I think you usually do get to talk about, um, you know, music, I've got to start there with you. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Zen Arcade, which is just still to this day, it's a timeless record. Um and that was kind of your introduction, and that gave you what you called the punk bug. And I was a generation after you, and so my introduction was in like ninety three, ninety four. And as I mentioned, you know, uh, the Jawbox records were huge. I have very fond memories of skateboarding, listening to them, and you know, just mixtapes. Um, but I was wondering, were you already playing guitar prior to hearing that, or was it like you heard Husker do, and it was like? Ooh, I want to do that. And I asked because for me, when I heard my first like introduction to punk and indie, that's what really made me want. I wasn't a musician yet. So I'm curious if what spawned that for you? Well, as I mentioned in my bio, I grew up in a world uh, in, in the 70s and yeah. where where music was created by, quote unquote, professional musicians. So you had to be touched by an angel to be welcomed into the the cadre of musicians who are capable of putting out a record right right like it was just an unattainable unachievable dream for someone like me who was a music enthusiast like i grew up right. lying under my mom's coffee table belting out elvis presley songs because like that was just i just i adored all of that stuff so like i was five years old singing you know suspicious minds yeah. um but but the the concept of like the the, the gap between elvis presley or to mention some names from my bio, like ACDC was a huge band for me, Van Halen, like all of the proto classic rock bands before yeah. classic rock was classic rock. I love that stuff. But the idea of ever being in a band that could be good enough to be signed to a major label and be able to release a record was just completely unattainable. And so sure. like, 
you grew up believing that there was a separate echelon for people who can create at a mass level um, or who can create music of that kind of impact and what you as an individual were capable of achieving. And punk rock broke down that wall for me. So I mentioned Husker Du uh, because I very discreetly remember getting past that tape by my friend Fickery Usell in, in high school. He's like, you got, dude, you got to listen to this. And I was yeah. like, what is it? He's like, just listen to it. Just shut up and listen to it. And I put it on. And I was like, oh, my God. And like, you know, your mind is blown when you listen to a record like Zen Arcade. Oh, or, yeah. you know, I went I, I remember taking a trip in, in my buddy Dave Holly's um, car up to the record store where, you know, like we had $15 between us and we were just like, what are we going to spend it on? I don't know. You buy this one and I'll buy this one. So he picked right. up a no trend record, um, which is a, an early hardcore, yeah. a DC hardcore band. And I picked up the first minor threat seven inch compilation, um, which at the time, you know, you could get, you still can discord records are cheap, right? Oh, right. Absolutely. And so, and so like as, as a, as a zitty teenager with not a lot of money to me, punk rock was accessible in a way financially that major label music wasn't accessible. And so like all of a sudden this whole world was open to me of, of creativity for one, because these were bands who were making their own music, putting them out on labels I'd never heard of, um, who, who were, you know, like I, I think who's going to record as an arcade in a period of like 48 hours wow. it was like a really long weekend. This is a double LP for those who, of your listeners who aren't familiar with this. Yeah. They recorded a double LP in two days, which if you were to record a double LP and you were rush, for instance, you probably would have spent about six months on it for sure. And so, so the, the scale of, of how music was done became very different when you began to understand how punk rock was putting things together in a very different formula from how, um, mainstream music was, was done at that time. And you began to realize like, wait a minute, the impact, the emotional connection I have to this music is no different. In fact, it's even more visceral and more intense. But the scale at which it's being done and the, and the, the, the accessibility of it to somebody who just wanted to play guitar and sing is like super present in a way right. that the music I grew up with was super distant. Right. And so that, that level of, of like understanding as a, as a 13, 14, 15-year-old, I had a guitar. Right. I, I, a friend of mine was a he was in a, a quote unquote band in high school. It was basically him and a drummer and they were playing, you know, like foreigner covers. Sure. And he, he had this beater guitar that he sold me for, I think, about twenty five bucks. It was a Kawhi um, and it had Rolling Stones lips magic marker onto the back. And it was like this white Kawhi electric guitar. Yeah. And I was like, I want one of these. So I picked up the guitar for twenty five bucks. I went down to the local music store and spent fifty bucks on a 10, 10 watt. PV amp. Right. And I was off to the races and I was like, I was writing, you know, I was writing ACDC songs basically because yeah. they were something that was really easy to, to wrap my mind around how you put together a song. Cause they're you know, like basically like blues songs. Um, but it wasn't until I heard bands like Husker Du or Minor Threat or No Trend playing this music using the same tools of the trade that, that Angus and Malcolm were using in ACDC. Right. Um, that I realized like, Hey, wait a minute, I can do this too. Um, and, and it was a process throughout high school and college of, of getting my head around, like, I don't need to write songs that are, you know, a four part mini rock opera right. to have people listen to it and care about it. I can just say like, what's on my mind and string some chords together and play it with conviction and play it with passion. And somebody might actually give a crap about it. Yeah. Um, that was like, that was a real revolution 
that um, personally I experienced at the time, but also I think culturally we collectively experienced in the underground music scene that that this 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 inaccessible world of how quote unquote real art was created was only inaccessible through a mental model that we had built around it being inaccessible. Yeah, I, so well said. Um, it's reminding me of a quote that, again, I came up a generation after you, but still, mm-hmm. this is pre-internet. Um, I was going to shows and getting my music at distro tables, or we had like trash American style in Danbury, Connecticut, and yeah. a couple of, like, or the tune in, and you would go and they'd have a little record store. So, you know, and it was always like that, oh, I've got to find this album or that album and the holy grail when in months of searching, you finally come across it at a distro table. And um, so, you know, I still experience that as well. Um, and I look back and, you know, so much respect again to to bands like Husker do and, and those like Minor Threat and everything Ian's done with Discord and, um, you know, so, some of the godfathers of this whole genre. Um so anyways, and I, and I want to, I got to throw my, speaking of, of Husker do I, I've got to throw my fiance under the bus. We were driving like a, about two months ago. She, yeah, she's going to be thrilled about this, but I was playing one of Bob Mould's records and, uh, and I still, I love his stuff. Um, I haven't heard his latest record, but I think it was maybe, uh, oh, it's dynamite. yeah. Um, I've been busy with the new Jay Robbins and Foxhall records. So, and we'll get to those. Um, but it was one, it wasn't the new one. It was maybe like Redline district or something. And, and she's like, who's this? And I'm like, Bob Mould. And she's like, who's that? And I'm like, Husker Du. And she goes, who's that? I almost <laughs> pulled the car over and was like, this relationship is over. Obviously kidding. But I was like so shocked because she has a great taste in music. And I just, it blows my mind that some people like that, you know, really do love a lot of good music still don't know about some of these bands. So that's why I love to be able to talk about this stuff on this show and the podcast. And um, so he's... You know, a little bit more about music before I move on, but um, something I've got to give a shout out really quick to my friend, dear friend, my brother, James Sapacinos, who I know that you know as well and um, has helped Drawbox out. And the reason I say that is because when I started playing, uh, you know, I, I never took guitar lessons. I started just listening to like like Jawbox and learning to play very discordant, weird stuff. Or I learned basically playing in bands from other guitars who took lessons. And to this day, I can't tell you like a major or minor scale. I just, I'm a, an, a mediocre guitar player that can play in bands and, and love doing it. But the reason I bring up James is that, you know, I turned 41 this year and I've been playing in bands since I was 13. And it wasn't until within about the last year of getting to know James where he really sat me down and began to teach me about tone and equipment. And I always, you know, would buy like when I had the money and I saw Paul or or whatever, I was always anti Fender. And now I have like three Fenders because of him because I'm like a humbucker guy. And um, but I found nice, you know, tellies with half humbucker and and, and, uh, whatever. So. But he like he's like, hey, here's this Vox, you know, 2005 AC30, and I'm running that with an 81 Fender Silverface amps I would have never imagined like owning, and then how to correctly wire a pedal board and teaching me how to intonate and shit that it's like, dude, I love music and I love being a musician. Why didn't I learn this so long ago? And now like it's night and day the difference. Like I'm so anal about my tone and and you know my pedal boards and the pedals I use. Was that something that for you early on was important um, 
or did that come later? Because I mean, Jawbox, you know, Jay records and the things come out masterfully. They're beautifully recorded. The songs are beautifully written. So does, first of all, I mean, I look at your equipment and I know we actually use a lot of similar stuff. I've seen a lot of live pictures. Um, but when, if at all, did that happen for you? Like where you became more tone aware and equipment aware and um, that sort of thing? Yeah, I, it's funny. Um, I would I would have to say, in all honesty, I spent a lot less time dwelling on my gear yeah. when Jawbox was going full time than I did just getting ready for this last tour. Yeah. Um, and I think that part of that is part of that is ascribable to the fact that um, when you're poor. And when we were a band full time, we were, we were poor. Yeah. Like everyone looks and says like, Oh, Jawbox is so successful. Like I, I think I might've put $19,000 a year down on my tax returns when, when we were yeah. going concerned. So it's like, you're, you're kind of broke. And so you can't afford to get too fancy with right. like, Oh man, I'm going to buy seven less Pauls and see which one sounds the best. And then, you know, sell the, it's like, you can't do that. So you have to, you have to kind of make do with what you have. Right. Um, which is, which is, um, it sounds kind of trite and kind of cliche now, but there was a lot of catch as catch can in punk rock in, in the 70s and the 80s um, in the 90s when we were were, were going. Um, you would you would cross your fingers when you bought a pawn shop, pawn, pawn shop guitar yeah. that it worked and that it sounded good. Yeah. And and yeah, you had to worry about if it looked cool and like, are you a Fender guy or a Gibson guy or whatever, right. you know, Rickenbacker guy or whatever. Um, but for the most part, it was like, well, this is a tool. And so I need to, one, try to use this tool to express what I'm feeling, express what needs to come out of me, while at the same time, allowing what the tool allows you to do to inform how you you formulate that expression right. in your mind. Um, and there's always been that that give and take for me. Like the ideas that I have access to now in, in 2019 are so much more vast than what I had in 1995. Right. And the reason for that is, A, I've listened to a, a bazillion more records now than sure. I did then. And so I have a lot more influences coming in. But just from, from a technical standpoint, I, I do a lot of my demos um, on GarageBand. Same here. Yep. <laughs> and I sit down with a GarageBand and I have... I have 80 different amps at my disposal. Right. We never had that before. No. And and as a musician, as an artist of any sort, like I don't you, you could be a painter and you could be sitting down in a ceramic studio and there's not a paint anywhere around, but you're just like, "Oh, ceramics are what I have to work with today. Let me see what I can do with ceramics." So as a musician, when you sit down and all you have in front of you is a Marshall half stack and and a a, a Gibson Les Paul, you're probably going to play something that sounds pretty less Pauly, right? right? You're going to, you're going to, eventually you're going to end up sounding like Jimmy Page. Yeah. But if you're that same guitarist and you're thrown into a room with a, a, a Fender Twin and, and a 65 Jaguar, you're going to be playing surf all of a sudden. Yeah. And you may not have thought like I'm a surf guitarist, but the sound that comes out of that instrument is just like, oh, whoa, I've got this whole new, new palette that is present to me that I can use as, as some kind of creative device. Yeah. And I think that that's like, that's what I've really gotten into. Even though I think you could listen to a Foxhall Stacks record and go, oh yeah, like I totally hear where they're going. Their, their guitar sounds are all really similar. Yeah. Like compositionally, I'll sit down and I'll just like, I'll plug in 
pl- virtually plug into an amp that that is on my computer and just be like, whoa, I really like this like this clean twangy reverby thing. Right. I wonder where I could go with this. I never would have done that when I was just relying on the physical tools that were present in my studio. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there's a lot about about the technology and where the technology has gone in the past 20, 25 years that has really made um, an artist's approach towards creativity very different because you suddenly have access to something that you didn't used to have access to. So well said. I was just going to say, and thank you, because that actually makes me feel a little better about it because I didn't think about that. You're so right. Like I was buying, yes, I would have a nice Les Paul, but when I played live, I was even if it was an indie style band, we were still always like that very energetic, like constantly breaking guitars. So I was using like $200 Epiphone Les Pauls, yeah, you know, because yeah. that's what I could afford through a, you know, Marshall and maybe whatever, but same deal. And um, even now that I'm getting nicer equipment, you know, people look at me, I probably similar to you like Jawbox, you know, you guys have videos, you're on Atlantic and I'm an author with Simon and Schuster and you can find my books in like any bookstore. So people automatically think like, oh man, you, you, you've got it made. And no, no, I don't. Like even to this day, like that's what I do for a living is I, I'm an author and a speaker and I have a passion to do this Mm -hmm. on the side. But you know, what helped me reconcile that is because, you know, equipment like the 2005 box or the 81 fender that's not cheap um but james makes a very good point that it's an investment because as long as you take good care of it if you ever want to down the road sell it you know it's only going to go up in value so i kind of look at it in those terms the same way i look at when i buy a pair of running shoes i cringe at spending a hundred or more dollars but it's like i compare that to potential medical bills as i get older (laughs) and it's like all right i can offset it um, so I've run up debt, but you know, cause I don't, uh, you know, being a, like I said, being a writer and, and in the line of work I am, it's not all that lucrative, but I love what I do. And I do love that I have garage band now, like you said, and can explore. The only thing for me is I'll start messing around with a bunch of pedals on there that aren't on my board and coming up with sounds. And it's like, yeah. oh shit, how am I going to get how that? Gonna record? That? Yeah. 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 Um, so anyways, thank you for sharing that. So switching directions and we'll, we'll come back to music because that's certainly a big part of what we're going to talk about. I wanted to read something that you had sent me and then kind of break it down um, yeah. piece by piece because there is a lot in this paragraph and uh, I think all of it's very important. So I'm just going to read it and then I'll kind of like steer us through, you know, breaking it, like I said, breaking it down, elaborating. Um, so you you sent to me something where you wrote, My career in the arts has been both an influence on and a product of a lifelong pursuit to understand the essence of reality, the truth of what lies beneath all of the constructs we witness and appraise as tiny humans with compromised senses and intellects in the midst of a vast, infinitely complex mystery. The nerdy 13-year-old in me fell in love with Carl Sagan. As an adult, I've gravitated toward Alan Watts and his interesting take on Eastern religions, a critique of Christianity as a great idea gone horribly wrong, and an assessment of art, quote, or not quote, uh, parentheses, particularly music, as a form of shared spiritual experience and communal individualism. 
So like I said, I want to break that down because there's a lot in there and it's very eloquently written. Uh, when's your book coming out, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I figured let's start with that nerdy 13-year-old who fell in love with Carl Sagan, who I adore too. I still love the old... Uh, what is it? Um, Cosmos. I know Neil yeah. Tyson has done the new ones and I like the new ones too, but um, I, I love um, Bill Nye, the science guy. Like I, I'm a big science physics nerd, even though I love spirituality, I see a big intersection personally there. But if you can talk to me starting out with what was it around 13 that drew you to Carl Sagan? Like how did you stumble upon him and what was it that called you to his line of work? Well, I believe, and I could have the chronology slightly off because it was a long time ago, but I believe it was that first Cosmos TV series. Sure. So I think that um, around the time, I think it was uh, uh, maybe WGBH in Boston put aired aired Cosmos or produced yeah. Cosmos, and they also released a companion book to it. And so I got the book yep. um, to go along with the TV was series. Was it the big picture book? Hardcover? Yeah. Yeah, yes. I have that yeah. too. Yeah. And so, um, and so like I had the opportunity to, there was no such thing as a VCR back then. So you had to watch it live, but I was so fascinated by the material. Like I wanted to go back to it. I wanted to understand the stuff that he was talking about. Yeah. And, and for those who haven't seen the series, it might be difficult to, to encapsulate all the various sure. things that he touches on, but, but really understanding the vastness of time, the vastness of the universe, the, the beauty of the pursuit of knowledge and the almost it's it's almost a folly the way that Sagan discusses it right like right. he is a scientist his he lives his life to find out more and more and more about the nature of truth and like Zeno's arrow right the closer and closer you get to the truth, you're never really there. Yeah. And you're finding out more and more granularly about what makes an atom work or what is actually going on in, in a quark or how can something be both a particle and a wave, right? Yes. Like these kind of mind-bending koan-type constructs. Right. Um, but but instead of throwing up your hands at it and saying like, oh, it's all it's all too much, I can't possibly handle it, his approach was like, I want to dig in on this stuff. I want to keep going for it. I want to keep learning more and more and more. Right. And that really squared a circle for me as a kid because I was I was a science kid. I was like very much into science. I love biology. I love chemistry. I love physics. I love math. I loved all that all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's something that is is at least the cliche at the time that I grew up was like there was something very soulless about science. Yeah. Science was about the pursuit of stripping away the the fairy dust from reality and laying it bare for you, right? right? Like with enough scientific inquiry, with enough studies, with enough research, with enough laboratory equipment, you could dissect a human and find out all of the parts that make a person a person. Yeah. Right. The assumption is a very mechanistic view of the universe, which is like, well, if we just dig deep enough, we'll find out how the universe all began. And if we just dig deep enough, we'll find out how gravity works. If we dig deep enough, we'll find out what happens to bring two cells together to make a human. And then what happens when they die? Where does that where does that person go right. at the moment at which the machine stops working? Um, which was like that, that notion in and of itself was really fascinating to me. I was like, of course. yeah, I want to know, I want to know the answer to all those things. But at the same time, I was really fascinated by Sagan's approach, which was just like, we're never going to find the answers to any of these things. 
but that should not stop us from continuing to look for it. Right. And that whole concept like was so enraptured me as a kid and like thinking of like, oh my God, it's so mind blowing to imagine how old the planet is or how old the universe is or what is it like, what would happen if I just kept digging, you know, like that, physically, what if I just started digging a right. hole in my backyard? What would happen if I kept going? You know, would I fall out the other side? Would I bounce there in the middle? <laughs> What's under there? You know, are there bones? Are there, is there gold? Is there aliens, right? Like yeah. all of this kind of stuff. And you just get really sucked into that idea of like, man, I want to, I want to find out all this stuff, but why do you want to find all of it out? And that is what Sagan was like, like this perpetual yearning, this perpetual quest of seeking is what I've always referred to it as. Yeah. It's like, what's that drive? And is that drive towards a finite conclusion where we as a species have discovered everything there is to discover and we're done, we wipe our hands and we say, all right, we know everything there is to know. Right. Or is it that endless, you know, you pull on the thread and the sweater just keeps coming oh, and coming yeah. and all of a sudden the sweater's gone, but why are you still pulling and there's still right. thread? Where's it coming from? Like right. that kind of like mind bending activity is something that really, really caught my imagination. That blows my mind at 13 too, because I didn't start getting into more esoteric concepts until I was like 24. And for a lot of people, even that's young, if they ever get you know interested in that sort of thing at all. Um, so, you know, that's incredible that you were, you know, having, you know, these questions and, and meditating on these things, not literally meditating, but, you know, like really just like thinking about this stuff and that it reminded me, I was starting to say, and then I went off on some tangent earlier in the conversation, something that I find so cool is that, um, a lot of the punk rock and indie rock kids that, you know, came up in, in my generation or before are now, I'll run into them if I, I kind of do my own spiritual thing, but if I'm teaching a, a workshop or speaking at a conference or I go to sit at a meditation group, I'm running into all these like 30, 40, 50 year old kind of like punk people that are really into it. And I mention that because in my first book, a friend quoted a friend and this isn't verbatim, but he said something to the effect that, um, the love for us is out feeling kind of outsiders as teenagers. I grew up in the suburbs of Connecticut and, you know, mm -hmm. skateboarding and it's just, I was in a very athletic town. So I was an outcast myself in a different way. But, um, you know, he said it was something to the effect of, you know, punk and hardcore offered us something that, um, was seeming, you know what, actually I have the book and I don't want to mess it up because it's a really great quote. Uh, and I've got like a stack of books that I have this computer on. That's how like professional I do things, just so everybody knows. <laughs> I, I stack books. Sometimes I use boxes. Um, but this quote, I believe, is worth it. Uh, a bunch of stickers. Anyway, so he had said, because it's right in the beginning. Thank you for your patience with me here. Um, all right, here he goes. A friend of a friend described the punk hardcore scene as a last-ditch effort for authenticity in a world increasingly devoid of it something that simple mm -hmm. um but absolutely that's what pulled me in at such a young age and i think so many others and the reason i'm saying that is because so you go from carl sagan and to talking about finding interest in alan watts who is there's definitely a correlation there but alan 
is kind of his own animal in a way. I love Alan Watts too. I'm a huge fan. Uh, I've been reading him for years uh, and he still blows my mind. So, um, and the other thing I love is that I'm, I'm still a physics nerd. Like I mentioned, I love reading science and, and physics, but also reading some of the old great wisdom texts from Eastern philosophy and seeing that they are saying almost verbatim the same thing just yeah. in different ways. So reading these 2,000-year-old Vedas or Upanishads from the sages and yogis of India, and now science is saying, you know, or has been saying for a little while, almost the same thing just in a scientific language is so cool to me. And I love that we're starting to find, or people are starting to come together, so there's not that soullessness that you experienced or said you experienced. So all that to say, moving on to Alan Watts, um, what was the journey for you from Carl over to Alan? How did you become uh, interested in that? Uh, Alan was a bit of an abrupt transition for me, to be honest, um, because I I was not familiar with him at all. And and Kim Coletta, who was my wife at the time that I turned 40, did an interesting thing where she, she solicited a number of friends of mine to name books that I should read as a 40 year old. So, so she got dozens of books. She bought all the books and she wrote a little inscription about who recommended it and why. And, um, and, um, and gave me all these books when I turned 40. And, um, one of them was from my friend, Jeremy, who, who had recommended Alan Watts. He said, this book will change your life. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm down, I'm down for some life changing stuff. Like it hit me. And I read the wisdom of insecurity and, and I was like, you're, you're right. Like it has, it is one of those things where I just didn't realize how down I was with something until I actually read it all. And then I was like, this is capturing all of these ideas that have been percolating in the back of my head for so long. Um, and, and, and it all thematically comes back to something that we started out this, this conversation with. And something that you just mentioned, which is basically the idea that all that you see is not all that there is, right? Oh yeah. And so, and I so that, and I think that what what Alan Watt, what really resonated with me about Alan Watts, at least in that book, was um, the idea in the wisdom of insecurity is that when you convince yourself, when you believe that you can be free of suffering that you can be free of struggle, that you can be free of death, you can be free of illness. You're creating a, a false falseness to the world that you need to embrace. Like you need to embrace the fact that I'm going to be dead. Right. You need to embrace the fact that everyone you love is going to be dead. That the person that you have relied most on in your life is going to get sick and die. Yeah. And it may happen tomorrow. You don't know. You don't have that control. So living a life of illusion where, oh, if I just arrange things just so, if I just buy the right insurance policies and get the right health insurance and live in a place that's safe and and lock my house at night and buy an alarm system and and stay off the dangerous roads and don't drive after dark and like all of this long litany of things that you can do to keep yourself and your loved ones safe, that you will somehow secure security right. is all a lie, right? It's all right. an illusion. It's all this veneer. And, and so I think like when, what we were talking earlier about um, the, the reality for me as a kid growing up was that music was 
I, I could see all that it was. And all that it was was you needed to be famous, you needed to be super talented, you needed to be in LA or New York, you needed to have be discovered, like all of these these what I believe to be truths at the time had to line up just so for someone to become a musician. And therefore, if you did not have those things, you could not be a musician. Punk rock for me was a peek behind the veil, right? Right. Punk rock for me was a way for me to look at that surface veneer of what I thought reality was and pull it back and see that it's just a man with a microphone and not the great and powerful wizard. Right. And so that, that, Watts was a connection for me to that idea that like, oh man, all the stuff that we, that we do as we adult, you know, like when you become an adult, you get a, you get a real job and you have to make sure you've got more money coming in than you're spending and, and you can't afford to follow your passions anymore because that's risky. That's dangerous. And you don't want risk and danger and you've got kids and you can't possibly gamble your future on, mm-hmm. on going out and writing books instead of taking the safe, safe job at the, at the firm, like whatever. Right. Right. All of these lies that you that you tell yourself that are going to make you make you become happier, make you become more secure, are just that they're lies. Yeah. And and then Watts Watts's connection to to Buddhism in particular yeah. really resonated with me. And I've I've got a a fascination with Buddhism, yeah. and it is a many layered onion. Uh, <laughs> you know, the more the more I I peel away to try to understand more about Buddhism, the more I realize like, holy crap, I, there's so much going on here. I can't even begin, um, to, to get it all. Um, but some of the basic ideas, you know, some of the basic fundamental assertions of Buddhism, that life is suffering yes, and that denying suffering increases the suffering yeah. instead of embracing the suffering, which allows you to experience the wholeness of life. Yeah. Like that concept was something that I came to through Watts. Yeah. And, and Buddhist notions of psychology are really fascinating too. Um, there's oh, yeah. a, book, a book who's, uh, whose title I'm going to botch right now, but it's by Thich Nhat Hanh, yep. um, the Vietnamese monk wrote yeah. about Buddhist, Buddhist psychology and, um, and the notion of seeds, right? Yes. Like the seeds in your consciousness that you can plant that can, that can be wholesome in the Buddhist sense of the term, or that can be, you know, destructive. Um, like that, that's something that I really have really attached myself to as, yeah. as an adult is like getting my head around these ideas that you can control your reality in so many ways that you used to believe that reality was inflicted upon you oh, or the reality was, was an object outside of which you existed and you could appraise it by walking around it and looking at it from all different angles and testing it and scraping off little bits and giving it, you know, putting chemicals on it to see what kind of, you know, that very empirical notion that we can, we can appraise this reality. We can test the reality. We can really understand the reality. Realizing that that notion put you outside of reality. It's like, wait a minute. I, I am reality. I am part of this reality. I am inside the thing. And sometimes you just have to be with that rather than to try to take it apart. Um, that those kinds of things are, 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 um, ideas that I came to through Watts. Yeah. And, and I love that you mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh as well. Um, he's a huge influence in my life and I love a lot of the deeper, heavier stuff, but I love Thich Nhat Hanh for the fact that it's so accessible. He makes these otherwise very, <laughs> very difficult teachings um the way they're presented in you know some of the other lineages or roots of buddhism um in a way that anybody can really like just pick up one of his books they're short Mm -hmm. they're concise 
And as you said, like for me, one of the biggest like eye openers when I ventured into my deeper spiritual seeking was just as you mentioned, the notions that whether they stem from Buddhism, they're definitely one of the the first of the four noble truths um, or, you know, Hinduism is very closely tied to Buddhism. But, you know, where two of the greatest root causes of suffering in our lives is one, aversion to pain and two, attachment to joy. And it's not yep. that there's anything wrong with enjoying life, um, but it's like when we're, we're grasping an aversion, those two things right there. And once I learned that, I'm still not perfect at like, you know, grasping an aversion. I'll still, you know, both get me at times, but the practice and becoming more aware of when I'm, I'm getting hooked makes my life so much more uh, easier is not the right word, but I feel like I don't come from a place of reaction versus like yeah. I come from a place of decision. And, and right. I'm grateful to people like Watts and Thich Nhat Hanh. And for me, Watts, the first book I read, I think was the book, the taboo. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's, you know, another, any, anything from Watts is a game changer. But, um, yeah. um, so also with Watts, you'd mentioned, and, and this reminded me, um, you, you mentioned his Christi- his critique on Christianity as a great idea gone horribly wrong. And there was a book that I had read years ago, The Knights Templar and the Protestant uh, Reformation, uh, which states when Stanley Jones, a missionary, met with Mahatma Gandhi, he asked him, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it you appear to be so, or why is it that you appear to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? And Gandhi replied, oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. And, you know, I do a lot of work with people in the mental health field and uh, that had religion forced upon them, particularly here in the West, Christianity or Catholicism. And I have friends, I want to be clear, that are Christian, that are wonderful people. So I in no way want to come across as bashing them. But um, here in the West, Christianity is the major religion. And I think it's gotten a bad rap for a lot of very valid reasons. Um, So I want to hear what your thoughts are on that, since you'd mentioned it, or Watt's take on it, at least. Well, I grew up... I grew up in a Christian church. I, I was raised a United Methodist. Yeah. Um, and I probably, I think I was around 10 or 11, decided that I wanted to be all in. Yeah. Like I, I, I decided I wanted to tithe. Yeah. So, you know, whatever. It was my allowance. So sure, yeah. <laughs> I was like, here's my here's my dollar a month <laughs> to the church, my 10% of my earnings. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought like, I thought, you know, I if I'm going to do this, I want to do it for real. I don't want to to dally. I don't want to dabble in it. Um, and so part of that involved reading, particularly the New Testament, um, very carefully. Yeah. Um, and and the more I got into reading the New Testament, the more I began to really struggle with how the the rule book of Christianity had come to interpret what I was reading as the words of Christ. Right. And I saw them at odds with one another. I did not see love. Right. I did not see uh, see salvation. I did not see forgiveness. I saw judgment. Yeah. I saw anger. I saw hypocrisy, and I saw all of the things that Christ railed against the the Sadducees and the Pharisees for was present in what became you know in the seventies and eighties the modern day Christian church, and I really couldn't reconcile that. I was like, 
this is just a it's a it's a it's a money making machine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I began to look at at churches with a very tainted eye um, because I saw them as interested in self-propagation more than they were interested in being Christ-like. Um, and it, it came, I, I remember a moment when I was, uh, I don't know, I was a teenager of, of some stripe um, where I, I read, um, it was a passage in, in Matthew, I believe, where Jesus talks about the way to pray um, and do not pray by standing and waving your arms in the right. temple, but go home in into the, the dark alone in the closet yeah. and pray. And I thought about that a lot. And I was like, I can, I'm totally down with that idea. Like whatever you think about prayer, whatever you think about, there's a, you know, a man upstairs sure. and you're giving your mere list of things that you want. If that's, if that's your thing, like go for it. That's, that's never really what I understood prayer to be. Right, but the same. notion, the notion of communing with, with the universal, let's just leave it at that. Yeah. It's a very private thing. It's a very personal thing. It's a very intimate thing. And Christianity, as it was expressed to me, as it was taught to me, was a very communal thing, right? It was all about fellowship and we're all going to sing together. We're going to sing hymns together and we're going to pray together. And you better make sure that you look like you're singing as loud as everyone else. And you better make sure that you have everything memorized just so. And you better put on the costume and you know, be prepared to go up to the altar to, to be an altar boy or to be a, an accolade is what they called them in my church where, you know, you put on, turn on the, turn on the candles at the beginning and put them on at the end. Um, you know, you had to put on the show and it was all about, it was all about the manifestation. It was all about the trappings. Right. Um, and it was, became less and less to me. I was like, how, how when you're so worried about doing the dance, can you actually be listening to the music? And, and I was like, you know, as a musician, I'm just like, what, what's the beat here? You know, like what is, what's the pulse that is holding all of this stuff together? And I realized that church was not doing that for me. Yeah. And so I think, I think the more I read critiques of Christianity, even from Christian philosophers and theologians, oh, yeah. Paul, Paul Tillich is a really fascinating character for me because he's a Christian, yeah. but he, I think he referred to God as the ground of all being, yep. the ground of all being. That might be the right phrase. I don't want to butcher the phrase, but that idea, I was like, that I get, because yeah. I grew up in a world where Jesus was a white guy with long, beautiful, flowing hair and a beard who was, you know, his, his beautiful portrait was up on the wall and where God was, you know, this angry dude with a, with a, a lightning bolt and, and a long white flowing mane. And he was angry at everybody and Jesus was cool and God was mad and the Holy Spirit <laughs> was kind of hanging around, like doing some kind of jujitsu to keep the two connected. And I was right. like, all that stuff, all those models, all those icons, all those those depictions were confusing to me and a distraction for me. Yeah. But the idea of like God as the ground of all being, I was like, oh, okay, now I start to get it. It's like, what what is there under all of this stuff that holds all of it together, right. holds all of us together as humans, holds all of what we know to be creation together, the essence of of gravity and and interstellar space and dark matter and and why how how does a quark turn into an electron and an electron or no to orbit a neutron and like right. all of this stuff come together into molecules and atoms and and, and suddenly cells space, and organisms you know yeah. like and then suddenly we have this like yes. you know like how, how does that all come together and that that whole notion of of a much more to my mind, complex and nuanced understanding of of God um, 
didn't really seem to be very orthodox with Christianity, you know? And so I saw so much about what was good and, and really resonated with me about Jesus in particular being so corrupted by the church, being so tortured, tortuously molded into this weapon, you know, right. Been of, of hatred for homosexuals of, of judging addicts and judging the poor and judging those who have to sell their bodies to make a living. Like all of that stuff was like, man, that is not what Jesus would do is my understanding of Jesus. And so all of these people driving around with their WWJD bumper stickers in their SUVs, I'm just like, I don't think Jesus would be driving a Tahoe. I just don't, you know? And, and And I wanted to be careful not to go down the path of judging them for being judgmental, right? Right. It's like, that's a trap to fall into as well. It's the same thing, right? So. So like, how do you try to, how do you try to rise above it all? And I think my answer was a bit of, uh, admittedly a bit of, um, you know, becoming a bit of a dilettante of, of different traditions, you know, like I, I sampled different traditions and I would find the things that resonated in those traditions that spoke to me and that sounded right to me and built my own, my own church of the mind, um, using those things. We're, we're very simpatico uh, in that way. And while you're saying that, I was very much listening. Um, I grabbed uh, my second book again, not a plug at all, but there were two quotes that I share in the introduction that I think uh, really will um, just further exemplify what you're saying. Uh, one of them, because I love mystic Christianity. Uh, I love like Meister Eckhart, who I'm going to quote in a right. moment, St. John of the Cross, uh, Teresa of Avila. But it, um, then I love I love the mystics of pretty much any tradition. I find that at the core, they're all saying very similar things. It's eerie at times for me to read Meister Eckhart's wording and then reading like Buddhism. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Or the Gnostic Gospels of Christ, the Gospel of Thomas. It's like one of my favorite, um, you know, not in the Bible Gospels, but mind blowing. Mm-hmm. So just very quickly, um, to elaborate a little bit further on what you're saying, Meister Eckhart, who is a world-renowned, you know, back in the early 1900s Christian mystic, uh, wrote, I pray to God to rid me of God, by which I believe he meant may all concepts about God be removed so she or he or it can be directly experienced as a living reality. Eckhart further elaborated on this when he wrote, Love God as God is. A not God, not mind, not person, not image, even more as he is a pure, clear one with a capital O representing everything, Mm -hmm. uh, separate from all two-ness. So to break that down, Eckhart is saying that God is in every single thing, just as every every single thing is in God, because God is separate from all two-ness, which uh, is also known as uh, panentheism. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then there was one other quick quote to hit the science side of things from Max Planck, who you, you may have heard this. Um, uh, but this is, I love this one. Um, and this is from a speech he gave in 42, I think back somewhere in Italy. And just quickly, he said, as a man who has devoted his life to the most clear headed science, to the study of matter, I can tell you as a result of my research about atoms, this much, there is no matter as such. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force which brings the particle of an atom to vibration and holds this most minute solar system 
of the atom together. We must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. So I like how you said, regardless of what you're calling it, you know, like I know God is a very loaded word for some people and I make it clear in my books and whatnot that call it what you want, universe, spirit, you know, whatever. There, There is this underlying interdependence and Thich Nhat Hanh, it does such a wonderful job at talking about everything at its core as science says is is like when before the particles uh become waves or or, or vice versa you know it's like a quantum soup and then mm-hmm. thanks to whatever all this crazy stuff in the quarks in the subatomic world now we have matter but it's all like if you put it under a strong enough microscope you're going to see the same stuff floating around at that subatomic level and it's mm-hmm. just mind-boggling to me and i don't know if you're familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh wrote two great books. Uh, well, all of his books are great, but one is called uh, Living Buddha, Living Christ, in which he talks about like these similarities. And then he did a follow-up called uh, Going Home, Jesus and Buddha as Brothers. And it was a really beautiful way of kind of reconciling those mystic elements of Christ's teachings, not the Bible version, but, um, you know, I just not only wanted to mention that to you, but to readers as well. Um because I think, for me at least, I, I grew up very atheist. I hated the idea of God, uh, anything. And luckily I didn't go to church, so it wasn't forced upon me. But it wasn't until I was ready, you know, to open up. And there was, in my era of punk rock, there was a lot of anti-Christian, um, you know, thoughts. And yeah. then there was also Krishna core bands. I love like 108 and Shelter and just saw 108 yeah. this weekend and they were amazing. So um, anyways... All that to say, the final point that you made, and circling back to music, because I know we're running short on time, but I want to talk about Foxhall Stacks and quickly about the Jawbox reunion. At the end of that, you say, and finally, art, particularly music, as a form of shared spiritual experience and communal individualism. So I guess speaking from your perspective as a musician, and I'm, I know you go see live music. I saw you posted like you guys played Fest on Saturday, but you were like, these are my must-see bands. And, you know, so you're a lover of music. What is, do you experience that both on stage and off? Do you experience it more one one place or the other? Is it the same? What What is that experience like for you? That communal, you know, we're here with this music. What What is that for you? Um, I think that's hard to, it's hard to quantify or hard to, to describe. Sure. I think that, um, I, I am not ashamed to admit that, that music routinely brings me to tears. Like, I, I, whether it's, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be a sad song or anything. Whenever I hear music in particular done exceptionally well, it just, it just pulls, it pulls it out of me in a way that it's just like, how can this be happening? And I was I was watching Against Me on Saturday night. So we played with the great band Against Me from yeah, love uh, them. the you know from from Gainesville, um, and I I had never seen them perform before, um, and I was expecting to be blown away. And sure enough, I was blown a bit blown away. But I was watching them, and I was thinking like, I was thinking, what would it be like if I if I were the only member of the audience right now, mm. if they were just playing this music to me, would I feel the way that I'm feeling right now? And the answer was no, right? Like the answer was no, that would be an artificial 
construct. That would be like a weird expression. The essence of Against Me's music at that moment was to be connecting with the hundreds and hundreds of people who were in the crowd, me among them. Um, and, and I think about, I try to think about that when I'm making records, like when I'm, when I'm in the studio, I'm very much playing to an audience of basically one, right? Whoever's, whoever's back there with their finger on the record button, I need to make sure I get the take right. But I have to imagine, I have to go through this exercise of playing like I am trying to connect with anybody who might hear this music. Right. So you're forced into a place of trying to imagine the universal from the singular, Right. Right. It is a very is a one on one, just me and my microphone or just me and my computer or just me and the recording engineer moment of connection. But you have to abstract that out into this universal like, how am I going to express this in a way that I'm going to reach somebody and create emotional connection with them through whatever it is I'm playing or singing? Yeah. Um, and that exercise, like that experience of of using the power of your mind to build a connection with someone that isn't there is like, that's the essence of, of what music does for me and what good art does for me is like, I'm, I'm creating this bridge that doesn't exist, right? There's no, there's no literal connection between me and the person standing next to me other than physical proximity, mm -hmm. except for the band that is on the stage. And we're both experiencing this and we're feeling Something that for for him or her may be entirely different from what I'm experiencing, but we're both getting something out of it yeah. that is bringing us together through that arc of the artist and arc of the music. And mm -hmm. that that experience is is something that I think is is at the essence of of human experience, right? Yeah. And and I don't think one need be on a spiritual path, quote unquote. Even the word spiritual, I've been trying to shy away from that, but I think it's uh it is a very spiritual experience, just for lack of, you know, we have to use the English language, but I often share a story about Slayer. I'll share a different story, um, but I was covering a Slayer concert where they were playing with Motorhead, and I had two very distinct uh, spiritual experiences. The The Motorhead one kind of ties in with Thich Nhat Hanh, where I'm up there with my photo pass, and it's a major arena tour, and, you know, I'm taking pictures, and... I'm looking at Lemmy's bass, which is this gorgeous wood carved bass. And just out of nowhere, you know, it was maybe their second song. And I started to think, like, go deeper about, wow, that bass was a tree at one point. And that tree was only a tree because of the clouds and the rain and, and the seeds. Going back to seeds, there was a seed that mm -hmm. was planted. And not only that, but somebody, you know, had to then cut down that tree and create that bass. And then... You know, someone had to manufacture it and then ship it and all of the people that were involved in, you know, creating this and how the, the interconnectivity, and I'm not right. even talking on that unseen level, like the science part, I'm talking about just literally like the, the food we eat on our tables, like people just eat. I, t I try to take time to think about, wow, like farmers grew this and then s someone packaged it and then it was shipped. And then, you know, it's just incredible to me that how we all rely on one another and we don't really take time to consider that. But that's the beauty to me of things like meditation or mindfulness or having some kind of quote unquote spiritual practice is that I can be at a Motorhead concert and rocking out to Ace of Spades, but still have like those kinds of thoughts or I've had very non-dual Trans, tr transcendental like experiences 
watching Slayer or Van Halen, not Van Hagar, Van Halen. Like, <laughs> uh, there is a difference. Um, but, you know, and I write about those in my book just as examples for people that, you know, it's it doesn't have to be that preconceived notion that many of us have about it, you know, about spirituality, about, you know, if we become spiritual, we can't listen to this music or that music or whatever. So anyways, um, keep my eye on the clock. I want to talk about the Foxhole Stacks record that just came out, which is um, amazing. Uh, I love that that came out around the same time as Jay's record, Unbecoming, because I have these two like rad albums to listen to. So um, tying, I guess, you know, segueing in from music into Foxhole Stacks, and I appreciate you're just saying as you're writing music, you're writing to an audience of one. Um, what is there anything else about that record that you'd like to share with the audience? I know it's a very broad question, but aside from me telling the audience, everyone, please pick it up and listen to it because it's a wonderful album. Um, anything you would like to share? Because it, it just came out, what, a, a, officially a month ago or so? September 20th. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, a couple, September. yeah. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that record was... Well, it was a long time coming. We've been yeah. working on it for over three years uh, yeah. because we're, we're all, we all have very busy lives and schedules. So getting it done was a, a real struggle in and of itself. Um, but that aspect of it aside, um, it was a very it was a joyful record to make. Yeah, it sounds um, and, that. And I, I know that words like joy are loaded the same way the words like spiritual yeah. are loaded. And it was like, oh, joy, great, you had, yeah. you, you enjoyed making your record. Um, but the, it's I have to. D- to separate it out from the experience that I've had making records in the past. I haven't made a record prior to that since the first Burning Airlines LP. So wow. that was 1999, I guess that yeah, came out. Right. You know, so it was a long time ago since I last really made a full-length record. Um, and and this one, I decided to take a very different approach because I think when I was young, my approach towards writing songs and towards being in a band and towards putting out records was I've got to do it with this one, right? Like this one has to be the thing. Right. This is the thing that is going to like get me to the next level, whatever the next level is, or it's going to allow me to finally pay off my car payments or like right, whatever that right. is. Um, and coming at it now with all this time and all this life under my belt, I was like, I want to make a record that I just enjoy. And I want to be in a band where it's just like the pressure is not on for us to to sell a million copies, the pressure is not on for us to tour or to please anybody else. Like Atlanta gave us a very long leash in Jawbox, but still in the back of our heads was like, we've got to please Atlantic Records. Yeah, we've got to be happy with this record. We've got to, you know, d- dance the dance of doing a video or doing in-store appearances or all that kind of shenanigans that comes along with putting a record out. We we just decided to do this super low key and as such make it a very pleasant experience. And in so doing, it actually was a pleasant experience. Shocker, right? Like we set this intention, or at least for myself, I'll speak for myself. I set an intention of of taking all of the pressure of all of the outside phenomena away and stripping it down to like, what will it just feel like to write some songs? To not second guess every last lyric, to not second guess every, every lick, every chord, and just go into a studio and trust that the people that I'm making it with and the process of making this record and the intentions that I have behind making the music are going to result in something that I find satisfactory and happy. Yeah. You know, and it actually worked out that way. It was like, what? It <laughs> shines know? through when I put it on, 
I wasn't expecting it to be honest. I was expecting like something a little more job boxy because with Jay's stuff, whether it's channels or burning airlines or unbecoming, it's Jay Robbins. You know, you, yeah, yeah. and I was kind of expecting that. And I was like, Oh wow, this is way different. And it is a joyful record and it's, it shines through it. You can tell that you were having, you know, a pleasant experience making it. So um, for anyone listening, we'll be sure to include uh, on the be here now network, a link to where you can buy this. Uh, if you're checking this out on the Indie Spirituals website, I'll put a link um, where you can find it online so you don't have to go searching for it. You can just go click on that. Same with the Jawbox material. I know we're at a little over an hour. I have two last-minute questions very quickly. Is that okay with you? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. So one is, and I, you're probably going to have to sidestep this, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. The, you know, the reunion was a smash like i was at the opening night well technically i know you guys did a pre-opening night i think in baltimore or something um but i was at the boston first night show which my god like you guys were flawless um i you know i don't blow smoke on this show if if i wasn't thrilled i would tell you but it was just mind-blowing um dropped easily over a hundred dollars at your merch table you're welcome <laughs> i've actually got Thank one you. of the um one of the prints sitting right next to me i'm so glad i think you guys did like 400 i'm like yeah i'll spend 40 dollars on that because that's how much i love Jawbox. uh and then you know so you did that run and there weren't any plans and then you just did fest on saturday and so you know rumors are flying around like wow Jawbox is playing again and they seem to be having a good time is there a new work, a new record that might be happening? Is there, are you at liberty to say have there been discussions about that, or is there a plan, or is it something you're just you have to be very tight lipped about right now? We're being very one day at a time about it, to be honest. Okay. And I'm not I'm not pulling any punches there. Yeah. It's like we've had we've had conversations. Like, what would it look like for us to try to get together and make a record again? Yeah. And decided that you know what our focus right now needs to be on the shows. Yep. Um, and the fact that we all have busy lives, like of one course. of the impediments to getting together in the first place was that I run a business. Yeah. I have a family. My wife runs the business. Yeah. Zach and his wife just opened a new shop in Brooklyn. Yeah. They just opened a stationary store just uh, two, two weekends ago. Um, Jay is running a studio. Yeah. Kim is an educator. Yep. Um, so she's got school, you know, like we all have these complexities to right. our lives that make it difficult to get together to rehearse, to even play the shows, let alone to try to write a record. So we've decided like, let's not set ourselves up for something that will introduce stress and introduce anxiety around it if we can avoid it. So our focus right now is just on playing the shows. You know, we have a couple more coming up. Uh, We're playing Richmond at the end of January, uh, January 31st, and then uh, Carborough at at the Cat's Cradle, Chapel Hill area in North Carolina on February 1st. and then, you know, like we're trying to line some, uh, uh, another couple of things up for the spring and into the summer, oh, but so... we're just taking it one day at a time and just seeing what, what, uh, life has to offer us. I appreciate the transparency. A quick follow up would, now that we've mentioned, we have technology that we didn't have back in the day. I'm in two bands currently and they only work because members are out of state, just like I know this is the case for you. And we record stuff, send it to one another. We practice maybe as a band once a month, if that. Um, same thing, though, we're not trying to be pressured because I don't have kids, but everyone else married kids. I'm engaged. So we do record, send, get together. Is that something that Jawbox, you think, as a collective would be open to? Or are you still very much the old school, like we have to be in a room and write together 
if we're going to do if we did something like that. We've discussed doing it the more 21st century way. Yeah. Um, we haven't actually done anything about it. At yeah. This point, but we've discussed like if it's going to work, it's going to work that way. Because right now, Zach does drive down for rehearsals on the weekends. And so he comes down from Brooklyn. So it's, you know, three yeah. plus hour drive and oh, sometimes yeah. four or five, six hours going back yep. on Sunday afternoon. So sure. it's arduous for him to make that trek all the time. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're realistic about the fact that like, it, a, it's expensive, yeah. you know, gas and tolls, not to mention the toll on the environment yes. um, to be doing all that traveling. Um, so we're trying to think about ways that we can adapt our, our process to be more internet friendly. Cool. Uh, but we haven't, we haven't gone there yet. Yeah. yeah I appreciate you sharing that at least you're open to that. And that just gives yeah. fans, I think, hope that maybe something will happen. So last <laughs> question, and thank you for, um, for being as transparent as you can with that. I do appreciate it. Um, sure. And I hope you guys keep New England in mind while you're planning more shows because, you know, we'd love to have you back. As you saw, you get a great response here. So just planting seeds again, just bringing seeds back into it. Last question. Um, I wanted to circle back to the beginning of that quote you sent me because that's the one part I intentionally didn't unpack with you. And I wanted to end on this where you wrote, my career in the arts has been both an influence on and a product of a lifelong pursuit to understand the essence of reality, the truth of what lies beneath all of the constructs we witness and appraise as tiny humans with compromised senses and intellects in the midst of a vast, infinitely complex mystery. Now, I know we've talked about that quite a bit, but my question is, today, in this moment, during this conversation, in your life, where are you at? with that exploration? Um, I am, it, it's the closer you get, the farther away it goes, you know? Um, and I think that that's uh, understanding and appreciating the beauty of that is, is where I've gotten to. Um, I think that, that again, like this, this idea that if you dissect something carefully enough, or if you put it under a powerful enough microscope of eventually you can find out its truth is an idea that I've learned to leave behind and let go of. Um, but the looking is, that's the beauty of it. That's, that's the purpose in all of this for me. And I think that as a, you know, I'm 51 now as a 51 year old with, with kids, um, uh, I've gotten that perspective that it's, it's a, a recognizing the beauty of trying to strike a balance between constant motion, constant striving, constant pursuit and stasis of, of just being present, being in the moment and recognizing that constant tension is something that like, you're never comfortable with it. Right. It's like, it's like, it's like trying to stand still on a bicycle, you know, like the only way you stay balanced on a bike is by keeping moving. And I think that that recognizing that, oh, in order for me to have that balance, that that presence, that being in the moment, I need to be moving. As paradoxical as it sounds, mm. is something that is, has become a comfortable notion to me at 51 that I couldn't have captured when I was 21 or 31 or 41. I love it. The wisdom of growing old, older, not old, older, um, <laughs> which I couldn't agree more. Yeah, like, I'm old. Hey, I'm 41 and I'm. It hurts sometimes when I stand up. So anyways, Bill, thank you. I know we went over time and you're taking time out of your busy schedule at work. So thank you very much for having this conversation. I'm really excited to share it with our listeners. And uh, 
just thank you for everything you do musically. Um, you've inspired so many. So I'm grateful that I get the opportunity to say thank you, at least via Skype. And uh, and on behalf of all the other fans, we, we appreciate the reunion and, and the Foxhole Stacks album. And uh, can't wait to see you back out, hopefully with some more Jawbox shows and fingers crossed on some new material. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's really great to talk to you. You too. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.